Well, thank you. It is uh, an honor to be here tonight. I have uh, so much respect for and am so proud of Pastor Johnson, not at all surprised uh, at the way that God has uh, used him. He was, uh, from the very first moment, very evidently the Spirit of God uh, was upon him and upon his life, and I'm really, really glad to be uh, here with all of you tonight. I'd like for you to turn your Bibles, if you could, to 1 Kings chapter 19, if you have a copy of God's Word with you. 1 Kings chapter 19, I'd like for us to start reading with verse 1 and read on down through verse 18. 1 Kings 19, 1 through 18. And if you would, uh, please stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the Word of our God. Holy Spirit says this, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my light to take it away too. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind." And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall appoint to be, anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet 
I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. May God bless his word to us today. You may be seated. A couple years ago, I was uh, listening to a radio program talking about a satanic prayer line. And what it was, was someone in a community who had uh, gotten tired of seeing announcements for, if you need prayer, call this Christian prayer line and people will pray for you. He was an atheist, really uh, hardened toward the idea of religion, toward the idea of, of Christianity. And so he wanted to kind of make fun of it. So he created a prayer line called uh, Call for Satanist Prayer. And there would be a, a recording that would say, Hail Satan, Here's uh, leave your prayer request, and we will pray to the Dark Lord on your behalf or something like this. And so it started getting people calling in all the time. And at first, what he started uh, attracting to that so-called prayer line were people like him, people really uh, in, a, in a mocking sort of way toward prayer and toward Christianity. It became a kind of little community with shared lingo, hail Satan, people would say when they first called in to the prayer line. But he said eventually he shut it down because he said there came a moment when people would call and would say things like, Pray for me because I'm pregnant and I don't know what to do. Or pray for me because I'm in a terrible situation with my parents and I don't know if I should leave or stay. Or pray for me because I have cancer and I'm scared to die. And he realized that what he meant as mockery and what he meant as a joke actually was drawing out some really desperate and vulnerable and scared people. He said, I couldn't, my conscience wouldn't let me anymore. I got rid of it. Now really, if he had known something about how the actual Satan works, he would know that this is right at the core of it all. Book of Hebrews says, through fear of death, all of us, are held captive all life long until we are freed from that. The normal situation of fallen humanity is a fear. And what's the fear? The, the fear is a conscience that reveals to us a guilt and a shame and a universe all around us that seems chaotic and predatory and threatening. But most of the time, the kind of fear that holds people captive doesn't feel like fear. Most of the time, fear gets translated in some people into a kind of uh, fighting quarrelsomeness, kind of animality of I'm going to strike out at you before you can strike out at me. For some people, it shows up as a kind of numbness. Uh, life just seems meaningless and they distract themselves with all kinds of diversions to keep from thinking about what it is that makes them scared. 
often you will have people who feel as though they are cowards who are actually the most courageous people in the room. And you can have people who feel courageous because they don't feel fear who are actually the most in captivity to fear in the room. What the scripture teaches us about courage is not that courage is fearlessness. Instead, that admonition that we have over and over and over again in the Bible, do not be afraid, almost always comes after a moment of fear and not an unreasonable fear. When the angels appear in the sky and the glory of God shone round about them, speaking of the shepherds, and they were sore afraid, the fear was an appropriate response. Only then do the angels say, do not be afraid. And why? Not because what you're seeing isn't scary, not because what you're seeing isn't uh, terrifying, but because we come to bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. A Savior has been born to you, Christ the Lord. That's the way that courage works, is by calling and bringing fear forward and answering fear, not with a denial of it or a numbness to it, but with the presence of God in Christ. And we see here, in this text that we just read, an example of what happens when someone is right at the nexus of fear and courage. We see here a prophet. I have my kids uh, live in a, a very Christianized sort of uh, uh, world in between their school and church and so forth. So it's not unusual for me to hear uh, over the someone talking on the phone saying, well, Elijah and Moses are going to pick up uh, Samuel and Jonah and then... Uh, you know, they're going to uh, come home uh, from Jeremiah's in a little while. A lot of biblical names in there, but they're almost always the names of prophets. Very rarely do you have the names of kings. There's a, you know, a uh, Solomon every once in a while and a lot of Davids, but that's about it. Largely because there aren't many commendable kings from which to choose uh, in the Old Testament uh, at all. It's you know, Hezekiah, but who wants to, if your name is Hezekiah, great. I, I want to meet you, but there aren't many of you. Uh, it, it's, it, the kings are usually uh, the examples of when the institutions start to fail. And yet, at every point when the institutions are failing, there is always a word from God. Word from God coming from the prophets of God. Now, notice when this situation that we just read about happened. Elijah seems to come out of nowhere here in the middle of 1 Kings, and he is confronting the king Ahab and the queen Jezebel, who are bringing in false religion. 
uh, into the people of God. As he debates the, prophet of, uh, the prophets and priests of Baal on Mount Carmel and ends by saying, we'll decide who's right or wrong by calling down fire from heaven. The prophets of Baal try to get an answer. They scream, they cry, they dance, they cut themselves, but there's no voice and no answer. Elijah stands up and calls for the fire, and the fire falls from heaven. Now, wouldn't that be nice? When you're having the argument with the atheist guy in the coffee shop, and you just say, well, we'll decide who's right. Lord, send down fire from heaven. <laughs> Boom. Okay, are we done here? Can we, can we uh, move forward? But that's not the way it usually works. Uh, a lot of times, the kind of presence that we want is a little bit of a parody of Elijah at Mount Carmel. We want to have visible vindication that I'm right in the moment. And yet, that's not the hinge point of the story of Elijah. Instead, that leads immediately to Elijah getting the hostility up of Queen Jezebel, who says, if you're not dead by this time tomorrow, uh, I, I ask for something worse to happen to me. And so the text says that Elijah was afraid and Elijah ran. There is a crisis that takes place here in the life of Elijah. Now, what this has to do with you is not that Elijah has certain lessons for how to deal with fear and burnout. It's that what God is doing here in the life of Elijah is exactly what he was doing through Elijah on Mount Carmel. He is uprooting all of those other gods, and he is sending Elijah on the way of the cross. And that is, the scripture says, exactly the way that all of us in this room must go. Some of you are in the middle of maybe some sort of crisis right now of fear. Some of you may be approaching a crisis of fear that you can't even imagine yet. But the way of the cross does certain things that we need to see tonight. And the first thing is this. We need to see here that in this way of the cross, loneliness is the way to community. Now, Elijah here is driven away. He is alone. That's part of the reason why he is afraid. Uh, we, we always are afraid when we feel alone. All of us have this natural desire for a kind of community and a kind of uh, tribe. But community by itself is not necessarily a good thing. Baalism provided community. Baalism provided unity. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Ahab and Jezebel were seeking to do. If you have this kind of common folk religion, you can have a kind of solidarity that is there. 
And that can show up even in, in something as, as simple as a funeral. I, I will often be at funerals in my hometown where somebody will come up and say, well, she's better off, she's with Jesus now. And you, you realize sometimes this is not somebody who actually believes in the, the promise of heaven and resurrection from the dead. This is somebody who doesn't know what else to say. Doesn't she look natural? She's with Jesus now. She's in a better place. There are these things that you say because you're supposed to say them and you have something uh, there to sort of bind you together. Ahab and Jezebel were giving that to the people uh, of Israel, wanting the whole nation to get on board with them, and that is why Elijah was seen as a troubler of Israel. What Elijah was doing here is going through a path of loneliness for the sake of future community. When Elijah says to God, I'm all by myself, there's nobody else left, God's response is to say, oh yeah, there are. There's 7,000 who have not yielded to Baal that you do not see and you do not need to see right now. But the moment of integrity at the, at the point of fear is exactly the path that God had to take him. There are many of you right now who are at a point where the easiest thing to do is to say, what does it take to fit in with the people that I'm most afraid of? What does it take to be part of a community and not to have the fear of sort of exile from that community? And yet often throughout the life of the people of God, there is the requirement to go out from that sense of tribal solidarity to experience loneliness as a means to a community you never would have imagined. When God speaks to Elijah and starts speaking to him of, of Elisha and these names, these are people he did not imagine as his community when he set out. But that's what God provided. Secondly, notice that in the way of the cross, weakness leads to power. Baalism is strength. Baal's a storm god, a thunder god. Baal is the one that provides rain and fertility uh, crops, your, your life. Baal is security. And yet God shows up here in a very different way. There's fire, there's earthquake, there's windstorms, all of these really visible manifestations of strength. And the Bible says God was not in any of those. Instead, God was in the sound of thinnest silence. Why? God's not a nature God. God's not somebody that you have a transaction with. I'll do what you want me to do, and you do what I need you to do. That's what Baal does. 
God is not a God who proves his worthiness by his demonstrations of strength and winning. And in almost all of our lives, you're going to face that moment of hearing exactly what Elijah hears here. What are you doing here? This is the sort of question that God is so often asking in Scripture. Adam, where are you? Elijah, what are you doing here? He's addressing him by name, and what you see happening in the weakness of Elijah is that you have God showing him his weakness. When the angel provides for him the food and the water that he needs to go forward, the angel messenger from God does not say, you've got this. Come on, you've seen success in your life before. You can see it again. The angel says, it is too much for you to take this journey. You need this intervention from the outside. And what you see happening in all of our lives is there comes a moment where the idols that we have built up start to disappoint us. And the moment of disappointment in our idols is actually an act of grace. That is God disrupting that in order to bring us to the point where, as the Apostle Paul says, we do not rely upon ourselves, but we cry out for someone else whose power is shown perfect in weakness. That is not the way that we are accustomed to dealing with fear. The way that most of us are accustomed to dealing with fear is to become scared of that sense of dependence and we try to protect ourselves. And the way that we try to protect ourselves is to look bigger, look stronger, look more successful, or we try to numb ourselves. We find something, uh, maybe, uh, maybe alcohol or a drug or pornography or just a general sense of shutting down as a way not to think about this, to protect ourselves from the sense of vulnerability that is the only way that we're actually going to encounter a God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ. When Jesus is being crucified and he's crying out Eli to God, the people assume, oh, he's crying out for Elijah. It actually was the reverse. Elijah here learns to cry out for him because the power is found not in Elijah's moment of visible success and winning. The power is found standing before a God who says, your fear is reasonable. Jezebel will kill you if left to her devices. Your fear is reasonable. You will starve to death if you're not given food. But the response to that is the sort of dependence that cries out, Abba, Father. So the sense of powerlessness, the sense of vulnerability 
comes out in that way. Someone earlier today here at the church was talking about her daughter uh, being afraid of, uh, afraid of the dark and afraid of, uh, afraid of being in her room, and she was thinking about how to, how to grapple with that. One of the ways that we typically do that is by saying, there's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing in your room. Problem is, children are smarter than that. <laughs> children have an intuitive sense that they are in a world where there's a lot to be afraid of. And when adults say there's nothing to be scared of, what they hear is, you don't know what's going on. And that creates even more fear. Because if the people who love you and protect you can't see what you can see about a, a scary sort of threatening world, then how are they going to help you? But that's not the way God de deals with us. God does not say there's nothing to be afraid of. God does not say this is not the valley of the shadow of death. God says, I am with you. My rod and my staff, they will comfort you. That's the answer. The power comes through the vulnerability. And then finally, just notice here that in the way of the cross, irrelevance is the path to the future. A lot of us, what we spend our entire lives doing is in whatever sort of area we have, maybe in a job, maybe in a family, maybe in a church, we want to have that sense of being indispensable. We want to have that sense of being significant. And sometimes when that starts to slip, it becomes really panic-inducing to people. Uh, that's the reason why some people, when they retire, go into a kind of spiral because their entire identity was in what they were doing, and now they feel as though they're not needed. Now they feel irrelevant. Sometimes people who have been serving in a way in the church, and then that changes, start to have this sense of fear. I'm losing my place. I'm losing my, my identity that is there. That's not usually coming from a bad place. That's coming from a sense of, I'm meant to serve and to belong, and I've so identified myself with that that when you, when you take it away, I'm not sure who I am anymore. What God is saying here to Elijah, when Elijah says, I'm the only one left, they're about to kill me too, you have all of this going on, it's really crazy. I don't know how I'm going to deal with it. It's for God to say, it's not about you. As a matter of fact, when God points to the future, here is what is going to happen. He doesn't say anything about Elijah. What Elijah probably wants to hear is, Elijah, there are some more prophets of Baal that you are going to take down. Elijah, your greatest days are ahead. Instead, he talks about other people. You think about how much of the fear that we often have has to do with our sense of competition and comparison 
with other people. Why do they have children and we can't? Why is he in a good relationship and I can't find one? Why is his ministry seem to be thriving and mine's not? Why does he seem to be having everything together and I don't? We have all of these sense of, of comparisons. This would seem to make it worse when God comes in and says, let me talk to you about the guy who's going to replace you. And yet that is exactly where God wants to put him. And that is exactly where God wants to put me and to put you. And why is that the case? It's because whether you go out in a chariot of fire, like Elijah did ultimately, or in a casket of pine, your life story is hidden in a bigger story and you are not, you are not the one that, is, uh, that, that we're depending on to make that story work. And Elijah sees this himself. Doesn't see it there. He doesn't see it till a long time later. When Jesus took his small uh, group of leading disciples up onto the mountain, and he appears in glory, and the disciples see next to him Moses and Elijah. I really identify with this account because I really identify with Peter, who gets scared and says something stupid. Says he, he said, Lord, let's build some monuments here for all three of you, for you and Moses and Elijah, because the New Testament says he was afraid and didn't know what else to say. Let's build these monuments here, which is a perfectly natural thing to want. Let's mark out this really significant uh, occasion. Moses is here. Elijah is here. And yet the scripture says that a voice thundered out from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And when they came out of the cloud, the scripture says, they looked around and they saw no one but Jesus only. God was even at this point in the life of Elijah preparing him to stand before the one who was headed to the cross and to see in him his life story. That is what courage actually is. Learning to see where your idols are, learning to let go of them, learning about a place of desperation that is actually worse than you think it is right now. So that you cry out like Peter sinking down in the water, Lord, save me. The problem is when that starts to happen with a lot of people, they feel like they're cowards. They feel like I'm starting to feel the fear when in reality, they're just starting to deal honestly with the fear instead of translating that into stupid social media arguments 
or numbing themselves to death with diversions or with a, a, a sense of anger at the people around them. They start to see it for what it actually is, which is fear. They learn to cry out, Lord, I don't know what to do, and God does not give a map. He just gives a compass. Look here. Look to Jesus. And just like the pillar of fire in the book of Exodus came into the tabernacle, didn't have a regular rhythm. When you see the pillar of fire, they set out. When it stopped, they stopped. And you couldn't predict it. You couldn't map it out. That is what is happening when you find yourself in those little hinge moments of crisis and you start to feel this sense of fear. Often what is happening is that question, what are you doing here, Elijah? The way to get to courage is not to pretend that nothing is scary. The way to get to courage is not to say, let me find some tribe of people to hide in. Way to get to courage is not to say, let me appear to be stronger than I am. The way to get to courage is to say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And to look back and to see that in every one of your lives, I would be willing to bet that when you look back and you say, where are the moments where God was doing in my life what I needed for the rest of my life journey, it almost never is in those moments of winning and displaying. It is almost always in those moments when you feel terrified, when you feel forsaken, when you feel as though God is silent, and only in retrospect can you look back and say, that was the time where under the surface everything was happening that needed to happen. And that's the only fire from heaven that we really need. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the men and women in this room. I pray for those who are uh, scared. Some of them have a, a sense of feeling scared, maybe about a particular situation or maybe just about their, their lives in general. And Lord, I pray that you would cause those people to see that not as a, not as a cause for alarm, but as maybe an intervention of the Spirit in, in directing them out of a covering that over. And Lord, would you give them the sense to be afraid and walk forward anyway into the future? We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to take questions now. If you already have a question, just go ahead and raise your hand. We're going to have Mike Runners bringing it to you, and we're going to run it by in a moment. Uh, Dr. Morris, they uh, take those around in a moment. One over here for David Kalp. Keep your hand up. They'll bring it over to you. Uh, should the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ seek to transform the culture if so, why and how? 
Well, I, I don't think that the, the church should seek to transform the culture in the sense that, um, you know, you think about what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, when he says, it is not those on the outside that I judge, that I hold accountable, it is those who are on the inside. Uh, what happens, though, is that the transformation inside of the church demonstrates and models to the rest of the world what the gospel is and what the, the kingdom is. That, that often works like you have this example of yeast um, in, in scripture, salt and light and yeast. These are all things that work almost invisibly uh, at first. It's not external. You can, you can be in a situation, Jesus could have gotten us to a situation when the devil says to him, bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and, and their glory. Uh, that could have meant a world in which there is no uh, sin or injustice or uh, lack of uh, conformity to values or whatever, uh, but it also would have lacked the blood of Christ, the cross. It would have meant a, a world headed to hell. So the transformation comes in a very different way than, than what we're accustomed to. And then one more question for David. Uh, how have we gotten to a point where uh, politics is so overshadowed theology where people who disagree theologically, and I'm not thinking on brother, genuine brothers and sisters in Christ in different churches, but where they disagree theologically, saying different things about who people are and where we're going, now are more aligned around politics rather than their theology. And that's kind of just what's driving the agenda for many Christians. They find more camaraderie with people who would say completely different things about how we're redeemed and where we're headed. Because what, what politics, um, and I use that term very loosely, because it, what, what we see is not actually what politics is. <laughs> the, the people who are working together to... Um, uh, to, to form a, uh, a society around them. Instead, what we see is this sort of um, partisan uh, tribal warfare is taking place. The politics has become a religion. And, and by that, what I mean is it gives to people a sense of vitality because the way that politics is being practiced right now uh, appeals to the limbic system. Uh, th there was a time when politics was very boring uh, for, for all the right reasons because often the most important things that are going on politically are boring because th th they're the things about, uh, about actually governing. The kind of politics we see right now is a way of having that sense of, uh, social media knows how to use this, because what the social media companies have figured out is that if they're appealing to somebody's reason or to somebody's hopefulness or to somebody's creativity or somebody's constructivity, they're not going to stay around long on that, on that link or on that post. What gets people engaged to the point that they stay and that they share is fear and anger. That, that's, that's what you tap into uh, in order to get that. So that means you're going to get more and more and more of it. That's what often politics has become to the point that it feels, um, it feels realer to people. 
than the gospel and the kingdom uh, do because it hits at that place. Uh, problem is that's a really, really uh, dangerous place to be, which is why when young people come up, sometimes Christian young people will say, um, should I go into politics? What I will almost always say is, okay, have you been sort of uh, a really politically interested person all your life? Were you the person running for student council in high school? Um, did you go to Boy State or Girl State and run for office? If so, please don't go into politics. Because if that's you, your vulnerability is going to be to see your life and your identity bound up in winning an election, which means that if you're voted out of office, it is as though you are being killed. When the only people who can actually uh, effectively lead in that arena are the people who do not have that sense of vulnerability at the core of who they are. Uh, the, the, you have a, a sense of priority where I'm actually able to serve because I'm not captive to whatever this group of people I'm afraid of are going to demand of me. That's, uh, that's what I think has happened. David Kalman, where's the other microphone? Okay, back there. If you have a question, raise your hand, they'll run it to you. So I've been trying to think of the best way to phrase this. Um, in the context of being a faithful witness in the secular workplace, and as our culture increasingly becomes more hostile to our faith, and we're getting to the point where a lot of jobs, like you can get fired if you uh, speak out against certain things or share your faith in a way that's deemed inappropriate, um, how would you... Uh, Obviously, it depends on the job, but for the Christian who, like, just say goes to a regular office and is just afraid of even talking about their faith, um, how would you uh, counsel them, I guess? Well, I mean, the, the first thing that I would say is that often what Christians have is often what we do is exaggerate in our minds the hostility around us to the degree that we do one of two things. We either, we, we sense a bigger kind of hostility than is really there, so we just preemptively accommodate to whatever is uh, expected of us. Just sort of bit by bit, get rid of your conscience, get rid of your soul. Or you, you are sort of in this um, sense of, I'm always waiting for the fight to break out in a way that, that really compromises your witness because you're, you're, you don't have the sort of confident tranquility that Jesus has. And Jesus stands before Pilate. He's, Jesus is sweating blood, but only when he's by himself praying to the Father. Not sweating blood when he's talking to the Sanhedrin or to uh, the, the governor. It doesn't sweat blood then. So I think sometimes I was... Uh, this past, past year, I had the interesting experience of I was teaching on a secular campus, really secular campus, and uh, I was teaching students during the day, almost all of whom were completely unchurched, most of them atheists, agnostics, um, and for most of them, I was the first born-again Christian they'd ever met, seen in person, 
you know, out in captivity, uh, not in the wild. Uh, and so uh, what I was surprised by is that I would have office hours and one by one by one, all these students would come. Uh, the first student who walked in said, I'm gonna ask you a question, and if this is offensive, please just let me know. If this is too personal, fine. Like, okay. You'd think there's like a, like a God, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and you think that there's, there's some way for people to be in like connection with that kind of God? Like, wait, well, not kind of, you know, just God's fine. Uh, he said, you think there's a way to be in connection? And so, and again, if this is too personal, how do you think people get into relationship with God? <laughs> That's not too personal. Well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be glad to answer that. Uh, next question was a uh, Hindu student who says, I'm really curious about hell. What is a Christian view of hell, and do Christians think I'm going there? Uh, one after the other, after the other, after the other of this. That, that came about, you would not have had those sorts of questions from atheists and agnostics in the Bible Belt uh, you know, 15 years ago, because they would have been surrounded by people trying to sell them on here's how to have a relationship with, with Christ. The strangeness of it all was actually what was drawing them into a place where they felt safe enough to say, tell me about this because I have never met someone this crazy, you know. Uh, at night, I would be with the Christian students, campus ministries, and what they would always say is, oh, just as I don't know what to do here in a very hostile sort of secular environment. And they're, you know, kind of looking around uh, like this. And I said, you know, um, they don't hate you as much as you think they do. And as a matter of fact, if you had enough confidence that you were neither trying to demonstrate your rightness by you know, humiliating somebody in an argument. Some of them had that temptation, not a lot of them, but some of them did. Or the kind of intimidation that sort of is locked up like this, you'd actually be surprised at how the freakishness of the gospel actually can, can uh, turn attention. It just doesn't happen the way that we uh, theatrically think it does. It's kind of like, I mean, we have kind of a Christian vision of, there are a lot of um, political leaders talking about politics in Washington who complain about this. So we've got this whole uh, certain age group of people who grew up watching West Wing reruns, and they assume that the way something gets done is there's this, this mounting music, and you walk down to the Capitol, and suddenly everything when in reality, the way things get done is much, much more gradual and, and almost invisible than that. Well, we kind of have that, that Christian um, version of that where people assume that the way people change is they have a 20-minute argument, and at the end of that, someone says, you're right, I'm completely wrong. 
Sometimes, occasionally, that'll happen, but almost never. And Jesus told us that. He said what? He said, like a seed that goes into the ground, like yeast that works its way through. And so having that sense of tranquility where you, you realize ultimately there is nothing that they can do to you. Even if they can behead you, they can't. But even if, if you're in context, they can. All they can do is take off your head. Jesus puts heads back on all the time. Uh, and the, the people uh, in the book of Revelation, the people who are said to be triumphant and the overcomers, not the beast who has the power, it's beheaded people who are faithful to, to the gospel. And so I think with that, that sense of tranquility actually goes, goes a long way here. Please tell us your name, sister. Um, Jill Townsend, and I want to thank uh, Pastor Tim Brown for posting this on Facebook last night. I was just scrolling, ready to go to bed, and I'm like, I said to my husband, Russell Moore is going to be in Westchester. And <laughs> I, uh, I'm a big Christianity Today fan. Everybody get the subscription. Um, but um, I want to please send a message to Christianity Today. They are awesome. They have integrity. They're brave. And they're kingdom vision versus political vision. And well, I love kind. that. I love Thank that. You. Please tell them they're well supported. So my, my question to you is kind of a meaning of life question, but uh, kind of uh, what Pastor Johnson brought about is with the divi uh, division that's going on in the politicalization, um, the question, I was in a, a family meeting and um, uh, one of the family members was talking to the others and you know, they were talking about all the politics and of course getting into you know, this president, that president. And knowing he came from a background of evangelical conservative Christians, he just threw up his hands and said, what are you, he said it fortunately for me, otherwise he knows I would have had him there all night. He goes, what are you conservative Christians going to do about this? Um, and knowing that things have gotten way out there, well, he asked it kind of rhetorically, but I've taken that to heart. and I was talking to my pastor about I go to Gateway Church, Pastor Scott um, Feather, and um, I, you know, I mentioned to him, I said, I've never been thrilled about saying I'm an evangelical Christian. Now I know I'm not going to use it. Two months later, there's an article in Christianity Today why we don't have the right to drop the title evangelical Christian. Um, so I, I, I know it's a meaning of life question, and your most recent article, if you haven't read it, um, about the Bible Belt and a lot of the people who are stirring up trouble, as you put it, aren't in the church. Um, they don't even go to church, and they don't know scripture. So I know it's a meaning of life question, and I've got it thought, but any comments of what you'd say, of what, not so much what you'd say to this family member, but what you would say to a congregation. I think there's many of us out here are as William Barclay puts it, the quiet of the land um, yeah. that, that aren't, you know, that way. So that, yeah. that would be what I would ask. Yeah. Well, what I would say is there is, there's a, a longstanding problem for evangelical Christians that we, you know, we were talking about hostility a little bit earlier 
we have a, a sense of understanding that there will be hostility and hatred from the world, rightly. But sometimes we're in a situation where we assume that that hostility is coming because of our Christ-likeness or our uh, conformity to the Word of God when it's actually coming uh, from the, the opposite place. So when, I, when I'm dealing with, I was telling someone not long ago, for all of my ministry, I've been dealing with young uh, Christians who are at the point of walking away from the faith. What's different is the why. Ten years ago, most of those conversations would have boiled down to one of two things. I can't believe that virgins have babies or that people come back from the dead. I can't, I can't believe that. Or, I don't want anybody telling me what to do with my sex life. That's essentially, the, 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 there's some permutations of that, but those were essentially the two things. So it is, the, the, the church, I can't follow that because they believe too much about Jesus. The church, I can't follow that because they're too uh, unyielding and rigid in their morality. That is almost never the conversation I have now with young people who are walking away, about to walk away from the faith. Instead, the conversation that I have now is from young people who are saying something along the lines of, it's not that I don't believe what my church teaches, it's that I don't believe that my church believes what my church teaches. Because they've seen a, a series of, of things where, for instance, there are pastors who will tell me that they will get up and say, just parenthetically in a sermon, love your enemies. When someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. And people will come up after and say, what are you doing with all the liberal turn the other cheek stuff? They're like, I'm literally quoting Jesus Christ. And what's interesting to me is the way that the response comes, which in many of those cases is, yes, well, that's fine for times like those, but not for times like these. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Um, this was in the context, when Jesus says it's just to be clear, in the context of an occupying Roman Empire that was crucifying people and chopping off their heads. Desperate times, you know. Throne of David, uh, empty and occupied by a puppet. You know, these are desperate times. And Jesus says the power of the Spirit and the way of the Spirit works. You have people who are seeing institutions and leaders that they respect uh, with a veil coming off and seeing some awful and horrible things uh, underneath it. And the sort of um, crisis that people are having ultimately doesn't boil down to the particular cases of scandal or abuse or politicization or any of that. It ultimately boils down to, is this just a means to an end? Because if, if what Christianity is, 
is ultimately just institutional self-protection or political mobilization or cultural tribalization or something like that. If that's what it is, then let me know because I can get all that elsewhere. Uh, and so that's what I think is a serious crisis. How do you address it? By not doing that. And, and, and what I mean by that is to say um, there, there is a way to look at failing institutions around us and to get this sense of despair and despondency and cynicism where we give up in one way or the other. We either give up by saying, I'm just walking away from that, or we give up by saying, eh, what are you going to do? This is just, you know, these are my people, and if crazy is what we do, let's do crazy. Uh, we just have to do that. We just give up. Instead, I think a better way to look at it is in 1939, uh, C.S. Lewis uh, spoke to a group of students at Oxford uh, in a sermon about why bother to study when the world's at, at war. There was a time when I saw that as just a little historical artifact, and I was like, ah, yeah, it means World War II. But it wasn't World War II then. <laughs> they, they weren't looking back at uh, the way we see this as 1939 to 1945. They were looking at this not knowing the end of that story, and we could all be dead in a year. And what C.S. Lewis comes in and says is what might happen to you right now is a disillusionment which could not happen a minute too soon. You can have a moment where your illusions start to fall, and what you, what you fall into is a kind of hardened cynicism or a giving up. Or you can see that as a moment where indeed God might uh, start to work in the only way he does, by taking something unhealthy tearing it apart, and out of it bringing up something new. And so for, for everybody's life, the kind of consistent Christ-likeness, consistent personal repentance and faith, the personal building of, of character and modeling of that, that has implications far beyond what you what you can see or know. There are always people overhearing and overlooking. And, and what, they're, what they're thinking of, what they're asking is, is this really real? I had a pastor tell me one time, he was, um, his dad was a pastor. He was a preacher's kid. Uh, he was a teenager, and he was just a really sort of stereotypical pastor's kid, uh, really rebellious, distant from the Lord. And his dad was serving a church in Jim Crow, Mississippi, and led an African-American couple to Christ and baptized them. And the deacons came and said, we're not going to have that here. Um, and he said, well, yeah, we are. Uh, I mean, I, uh, and they sent the clan to say, we're not going to have this in this community. And he says, I, I report higher up the pay grade. And uh, what the scripture says is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And that's 
Uh, that's what we're going to do. He was fired. Couldn't find another place, and he had to move the family in the middle of this guy's high school. Uh, the dad had to work uh, as a custodian, I think, in a hospital all night long in another city. They barely scraped by, disrupted everybody's life. He said that when his dad was on his deathbed, he called him over and he said, son, I'm just so sorry about the fact that I was fired from my job and you had to move in your junior year. So sorry that we couldn't afford uh, all of these things and that you had to go through that really awful time. And I apologize. And my friend said, Dad, you lost a church and you gained a son. He said, until that moment, I probably would have assumed my dad preaches the gospel because that's what his job is. But there I saw that it was real. I think everybody in the Christian life, whether you see it, some often not in those dramatic moments, but there are people who are asking inside of themselves, is this really real? And it, it's worth it to uh, pursue it. We're not always going to get it right. We're going to make mistakes. That's, that's part of what people are overhearing as well. Uh, am I able to uh, repent and start over again? All right, if you have a question, raise your hand, one over there, and then Isaac himself also has a question. Uh, if you have it, keep your hand high. Hi, Dr. Moore. Hi. Um, could I ask you, and maybe you're still personally processing some of this, but maybe ask about um, if you have any resolved thoughts regarding your recent experience, kind of distancing yourself from unhealthy power structures, and maybe even some comments about if healthy denominationalism is attainable or what that would look like? Is healthy denominationalism attainable? Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah. What that would look like. Yeah. Uh, well, um, I was telling a, a group of, of folks here this afternoon that um, one of the things that we've seen shift uh, over the past 40, 50 years, is the nature of denominationalism uh, generally. So that, um, I mean, I grew up probably, I guess the first sound I heard was my mother's heartbeat, but the second would have been the organ at Woolmarket Baptist Church. You know, that's, <laughs> I was there uh, from, uh, from conception onward um, and was uh, taught you know, uh, in, in all kinds of explicit and implicit ways, we are Southern Baptists. There are other Christians, bless their hearts, they do the best they can, <laughs> but we are the greatest missionary force since the Apostle Paul, and so we have a responsibility to lead the weaker brothers and sisters. You know, it was not, not often put that explicitly, and when I say I drank the Southern Baptist Kool-Aid, I mean literally the Vacation Bible School Kool-Aid with the little uh, cookies with a hole in it. And so that was, uh, that was an entire sort of uh, identity of uh, belonging. And for a long time in American life, uh, these denominational structures were such that if you moved to another city, 
you were, if you're a Methodist, you're just looking for the Methodist church. If you're a, a Baptist, you're just looking for uh, the Baptist church. And they would have a kind of similarity to all of one, uh, one another, where there would be this sense of, I was speaking at an Anglican uh, uh, conference one time, and afterward, uh, I had person after person after person coming up wanting to reminisce about Southern Baptist life. They wanted to talk about hymns in the Baptist hymnal and about, um, you know, the prelude to uh, Vacation Bible School and, you know, all of these sorts of, of things. None of them bitter. They just wanted to, they had that sense of nostalgia because there was a, there was sort of a common almost vocabulary that was there. That is no longer the case in any denomination for a lot of uh, reasons. And so what's, what's happening is, I think we have to have denominational institutions. They're, they're necessary. And we have to hold them lightly. Uh, in, in the sense that we keep them in priority so that you're able to, when institutions start to fail, uh, to, to engage that. I, I think that's what, I think it's, okay, it's my um, microphone is uh, failing. Southern Baptist Headquarters is cutting that off. <laughs> the local church is Southern Baptist Headquarters, I know. <laughs> I was joking. So, but, but I think that, I think that, I think that we're at a time when, um, we're at a time when, with so many institutions failing, um, there's going to be a necessity of doing everything we can to maintain those healthy institutions, and there's got to be a, a working to create new institutions, both. It's, it's not one or the other, both of those two things have to happen. This is a question that was texted in. Was the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply fulfilled in Jesus or transformed to the Great Commission to make disciples, or should Christians still be bound to the creation mandate as well? Um, well, I think that the creation mandate to be fruitful and, and multiply ultimately is fulfilled through new birth. Uh, you, you have the uh, Jesus says, uh, here I am, behold, here I am, and the children that you have given to me. That's the ultimate sort of fulfillment of that. But it does not mean that there's not a subordinate uh, fulfillment of that, which is the cultivating of the next generation, um, both in terms of families raising up children and nurture and admonition of the Lord and within the church, those uh, spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers cultivating and discipling the next generation of, of God's people. I think it's both. Hi, Dr. Moore. My name is Mark Jorgensen. And uh, I was curious, over the past, say, eight to ten years, any practical lessons you've learned navigating conflict with other Christians that you might share with us? Trying to think of any conflict with other Christians. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think the, the main thing um, that I would say is that 
often the correct way of conflict is the opposite of what we are sort of wired to do, which is when someone is coming after me, the natural response is to, or the, the expected human response is to engage. And when someone's coming after someone else, to disengage, not to pay attention to it. When in reality, it, it really should be the opposite, uh, which is to say in most cases, sort of uh, conflict that is directed toward me personally, I don't engage with. As a matter of fact, usually don't even know about. I mean, there, there are, there are, um, there are often times where um, I, I was saying the other day about someone who's um, a message that I had listened to and that it was really, really good, and they said, oh, but he hates you. Didn't you see what he said about you and whatever? Like, okay, well, it's still good. Uh, so it's sermon in two. I, don't, I didn't know that and really don't need to. Uh, uh, but when it comes to, I think often what happens, especially in local church uh, settings with leadership, what typically happens is that you can have the majority of people who are really supportive of good uh, leadership and they just assume most people are kind of like I am or they're gonna, they're gonna get like I am. We just kind of bear with them. And you've got sometimes a really uh, small minority, but a minority of people who are willing to do anything. Uh, a lot of times what happens is in those situations, the healthiest people disengage and just assume, well, this will all sort of work itself out and I'm not gonna pay attention to it and the unhealthiest people engage uh, a, lot, uh, a lot further. And, and you end up with a situation where you can have disastrous results, uh, even though most of the people are, are in the right place. When what you actually need are some people to step in and say, um, when we have good and, and godly leadership, even if it's good and godly leadership that I don't agree with on everything, we're going to be leaning into that in, in helping and supporting that person. Not in a situation that's, you know, abusive and, and, or heretical or something like that. Then you deal with it. But in those situations to actually uh, stand up and speak up for those people. Well, it's, it's because um, I think we misunderstand Elijah and, as Jesus says, the one who uh, comes in the spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist. Because I think the first thing that I always think of when I think of Elijah or John is Mount Carmel or Jordan River. Uh, when in reality, what the scripture does with both of those 
is to take you not just with Elijah at that moment in the wilderness, but you have John the Baptist who is sending his disciples to come to Jesus to say, are you the one that we're to, to, to expect or should we wait for another? That's coming, from, that's coming from the one who said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world um, and who heard the voice from heaven and saw the Spirit fall. Um, so, and the, the interesting thing about that is Jesus's response to that, which was not, can you believe, here we've got, even John's a whiner now. Uh, no, he says, um, he, he talks about John the Baptist as the greatest of the prophets up to that point, at that moment. So I think there is a, a way in which all of us sort of live our lives with the expectation um, that vulnerability is a, is a problem. Um, and I think that, that becomes really important as people, I mean, everybody, if the Lord doesn't come, by that point, everybody is going to experience the ultimate vulnerability uh, of death. Part of what it means to follow the Christian life is to unlearn this idea that God is most pleased with me when I feel the most triumphant. And instead to realize God is very close to me uh, in, those, in those moments of vulnerability and weakness. I just think that is something that we, we need to see. And often, the reason I wrote that book is because I was having uh, all of these conversations with people who were actually at their, what I would consider the greatest point of sanctification in their lives, who thought they were failing because they were experiencing vulnerability and they, they may have cognitively known that doesn't mean God's mad at me, but they, they felt as though God was mad at them. And then to have the situation where I was having all of these Christians who are the spirits moving in their lives, they're sinning, they're repenting of sin, they're so forth, who, will, who would come and say, uh, I think that God's mad at me. One of them, a college student I was working with, said, I think that God is just angry with me because I disappoint him so many times. He said, and even, I know you're not supposed to do this, but I flip open my Bible, and every time I flip open my Bible and look uh, down, I see this word of judgment, and I think, oh, is this God saying to me that, I said, give me your Bible. I flipped it open. I said, see, it, it naturally flips to Ezekiel. There, there is a, a lot of, uh, that, that's where it's flipping. So let's understand what Ezekiel's about. Um, but I think there were, uh, I, I was having more and more of those uh, conversations in a time in the culture where the people who are actually the most courageous think that they're the most scared and that the people who seem to be the most confident are filled with fear. And I think we should uh, we should see the other side of that. And is that how that applies to kind of the tribalism of Christian nationalism? It makes us feel strong. 
Well, not just that, but I think I think any of these any of these ways that we try to substitute um, something uh, for the kingdom of God as defined by the cross can do that. So it doesn't have to be with these big sorts of um, movements. That that can happen um, just in. I had a, um, a mom one time, Wednesday night Bible study. I think about her all the time because she came up afterward and we, it was a time we had a time of prayer. You know, people were getting up and asking prayer requests for various things. She came up and she said, um, and she looked around and said, can you pray for my daughter who is an atheist, is away at school? And I said, yes, but why are we whispering? <laughs> And she said, because I didn't want everybody in here thinking they're the ones with the atheist daughter. And I realized what was happening was that somehow, either in her mind or in reality, there was this understanding there that the people who are really succeeding in Christ are the people who do not have children who go through uh, difficult and catastrophic times. When, if that family is anywhere in the Bible, I cannot find them uh, anywhere, including the family of Jesus himself. So, th there, but there was this sense of, that I think shows up in all of our lives if we don't realize it, that that actually I'm in this kind of ongoing judgment seat of people around me uh, rather than realizing actually the judgment seat of Christ frees me from that because I'm really not dependent on checking my polling standing with whatever this group is here. I'm, I'm standing before the judgment seat of Christ who knows everything and who has already handed down the penalty and paid it. And that gives, I think, a sense of freedom. Would you help me thank God for more? Again, I want to say thank you to Crossway. They gave us the Carl F. Uh, H. Henry books. Champ Thornton works for Crossway. He's in the children division here. Champ, raise your hand real quick. All right, so if you want to talk about children's books, thank you, Champ. Thank you, Crossway. Yeah, you can clap. Clap for Crossway. That's good. I would like to invite you back next month. We have Ligon Duncan uh, coming to preach for us on Sunday morning, and he'll be teaching on the relationship between uh, New Covenant Christianity and the law and how we understand that here for Sunday Night Theology. So if you're a guest with us, we'd love to have you back. Ligon is a wonderful preacher, also a faithful teacher as well. Please plan to be here with us 5 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. Again, if you're not very familiar with our list, you should be able to find that at the Connection Center or online. And then I just want to thank you to all say thank you to all of the local pastors who are here. I know that we have many churches that are represented, several denominations. But for those who are laboring in pastoral ministry, again, we are grateful.